All right. Good morning, everyone. You're going to study in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, this morning. We have a rather large passage, so we're going to get right into the text this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians, chapter 3, we're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Verse 1, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning, this Lord's Day, that we can gather as your people here at Cornerstone to worship you together. Lord, you are so good and you are so great. We thank you so much for the salvation you've given to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you sent him into this world to die on the cross on our behalf, that we might be saved, that we might be forgiven, that we might have that blessed hope of heaven when we will forever be in your presence. And Lord, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you, by your spirit, would teach us, guide us in your truth, help us to understand your word, give us insight in our hearts, that we might not only read and hear, but we would also heed the words that are uh, taught to us this morning from the book of Colossians. Father, may you use it in our lives to bring honor and glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the second half of verse 9 and all the way down through verse 17. 
And the foundation of what Paul is writing to in the Colossians is the salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ. It's a salvation that is multidimensional. It looks back to the point of our conversion when a person is first saved by the Lord. At that moment in time, there was regeneration. There was a new birth. There's a cleansing. There's forgiveness that washes away all the sin, all the defilement, all the guilt that sin had brought to that person's life. In Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 or I'm sorry Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 and 22 Paul referred to this when he said and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach And here Paul refers to a future time when in the very presence of God in heaven, those who've been forgiven in Christ will be presented before God, before him in holiness and blamelessness and beyond reproach. That's the future hope that was mentioned by Paul in Colossians 1 verse 5 when he referred to the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So our salvation not only looks back to the forgiveness that we receive the moment we're saved, but it's also looking to the future because our salvation in Christ guarantees our eternal hope. But what Paul's concerned about as we come to chapter 3 of Colossians is the present aspect of our salvation as it's being worked out in the lives of God's people. Based on what Christ has done for us, the forgiveness that we received in him, and in light of the future hope that we have of glory in his presence, what kind of people ought we to be? Now, the salvation that God has provided us in Christ intends to change our lives so much that God's own characters lived out in and through us, and that we're brought into the conformity with his character. And so our conduct is simply a manifestation of the character of God being produced in us. This is Christ's preeminence demonstrated in the lives of his people. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and down through the first half of verse 9, Paul gives a general overview of the things that are not to characterize believers. And then in verses 12 through 17, he tells us the things that are to characterize believers. Particularly, verses 5 through 9 focus on more of the negative things, verses 12 to 17 more on the positive things. We as as believers are to put off, just like dirty clothes, sinful attitudes, sinful words, sinful actions by having our minds continually renewed by the Spirit of God using the Word of God in our hearts. And then we are to be about replacing those sinful things by putting on, just like clean clothing, Christ-like attitudes, words, and actions, the new things that are characteristic of our new life in Christ. In a word, this passage speaks about our sanctification. It's a call for us to be who we are in Christ. The very fact that Paul's telling us to put off is an indication that there's a danger that we could carry on some of those clothing, some of those old, dirty clothes. So we need to be careful that our lives represent Christ in a God-honoring way. Verse 9 begins with the present tense command that we saw last week. Do not lie to one another. Why? Well, he gives us why in the rest of verse 9. 
Why are we not to do these things? Why do we lay aside these things? Why do we put off these sinful attitudes and actions? He says, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, verse 9. And here we see sort of a bridge between putting off and putting on. It gives us away from the old life to the new life. It crosses a chasm that could never be crossed except being made a new creature by the Lord Jesus Christ. And since we are new, since we have been redeemed, since we are new creations in Christ, since we are new men, new man, we are to put this off and put this on. It says here the old self, verse 9. Since you laid aside the old self, literally it says the old man, anthropos is the word. We have laid aside the old man. The old man refers to the same thing in Scripture as the expression the flesh in many passages. All that we are is falling beings in Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. We've inherited from Adam our sin by nature. You laid aside the old self. That's past tense. It's an aorist form. It's done with. It's over with. It's completed. You laid aside the old man. We're no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. It's a picture of removing the dirty clothes. You laid it aside. You're done with it. And so when we trusted Christ, the old man was removed. His authority, his dominion, it's ended. We've been transformed. We're now a new person. The old man is crucified with Christ. The old self is dead. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. The commentator Lenski writes, and I quote, The old man is not converted. It can't be converted. It can only be killed. The old man is not renewed. It can't be renewed. It can only be killed. End quote. It can only be replaced by the new man, by the creative act of God, and nothing less. Salvation is a complete new creation. We've been transformed. We're not two people. We don't have an old man and a new new man living side by side. We're not two natures. You can't be both in Adam and in Christ. You were in Adam, now you are in Christ. You were a slave of sin, but now you are a slave of righteousness. You're a new creation. The old things have passed away. It's been crucified. That's our new identity in Christ. And that's really the foundation of our sanctification, our new position in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, we read, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. In other words, you were, but now you are. You were in Adam, now you're in Christ. You were an old man, now you're a new man. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. It's still I, but it's not the old I. It's the new I in Christ. 
We're inseparably linked to the life of Christ who lives in us. And because of that, we now have a capacity to live out his life in the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act. doesn't mean we don't struggle and battle over sin because we all do. We're all still in the flesh. We still have what one of my professors called a sin hangover. Remnants of the fallen nature in our minds and in our faculties. We're still in unredeemed flesh. And that's why this is such a struggle. That's why we do it, as it says in Philippians 2, with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing that it's God who's working in us. So as a new believer, we have a new desire. We have a new goal in life. We have a new aim. New longings. Because we are new creatures. Now, going back to Colossians 3, verse 9, you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. The word evil there is in, in italics, with its practices. The old self has evil practices. Those practices are sinful. They are not God-honoring. And so when the old man was set aside, when we died with Christ, those practices were set aside as well. There's to be a change in our lives. In other words, salvation is visible, It's not just in our heart. It's shown on the outside as well. It's an outward manifestation of the work that God has done in our hearts on the inside. And so progressively, the Lord leads us to be more and more conformed to the image of the one who created us. And that's sanctification. Now, verse 10, Paul goes on to say, Not only have we laid aside the old self with its evil practices, but we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We put on the new self. This word new is neos. It means new in kind. A direct contrast to the old man. We're new. We put off the old. We put on the new. Another aorist tense, past tense, done deal, completed action. That's what I am in Christ. Christ who is my life. Verse 4. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. We not, not only died with Christ, but we've been raised up with Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you're all familiar with this, aren't you? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creature, right? The old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. So I'm a new man, a new person. I am what I am now in Christ. He dwells within me. And then he goes on to say, you've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This word renewed at its very root has the word kainos, which is another word for new, but it's not new in kind. It's new in quality. So not only are we new in kind, but we're also being renewed to a newness of quality. And it's a present tense. It's an ongoing process. We're talking about progressive sanctification of the child of God. The process whereby those who have been saved by God's grace are progressively being made more and more into the conformity of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his character and in in his behavior. This word is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed Day by day. So whatever's happening with this physical body, we're progressively on the inside growing, 
and being renewed and maturing and being made stronger. For being renewed, it says in verse 10, to a true knowledge. This word is the word epignosis, which means a full knowledge, a thorough knowledge, a deep knowledge. This is the word that Paul uses back in chapter 1, where he prays for the Colossians that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, increasing in the knowledge of God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it says that because of the mercies of God, we're to present our bodies as what? Living and holy sacrifices, right? That we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds, same word, that we might prove what the will of God is. That's the work that God is doing within us. We're being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, back in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, we're told that God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Now, because of sin and because of rebellion against God, that image has been marred. It's been corrupted. No longer do we, by nature, manifest God's beauty in in his character, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his goodness, in his kindness, and so on. Sin has corrupted the image of God in man. Now what God is doing in his children is restoring that image, remaking us according to the intent of his creation, to restore us to his image. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And as we see what God has revealed concerning himself in the word, as we submit to the word of God, as we submit to the Spirit of God, who now dwells in us, that process occurs. It's a supernatural work that God does within us. As we submit to the truth of God's word, the spirit of God takes that truth and he builds it into our lives and he progressively makes us more and more like Jesus. That character of God himself is more and more produced in our lives. The spirit of God uses the word of God to work in the hearts and lives of the people of God so that we might become more like the son of God and it's all for the glory of God. That's the process that's going on. We're being renewed according to the image of the one who created us, being brought into his conformity, and we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, verse 29. Now going on quickly to verse 11, the Apostle Paul addresses the breakdown of the distinctions that no longer exist in Christ. In the world, there's all kinds of division, isn't there? There always has been division ever since the Tower of Babel, right? Division, division. You know, this group, that group, this group against this group, that group against that group, and so forth. But in the church, in Christ, all of those distinctions disappear. They're no longer relevant. Look at this verse, verse 11. He says, A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, But Christ is all and in all. So Paul addresses these distinctions. And there are basically four here. Four distinctions. Ethnic, religious, uh, cultural, and social. 
Those barriers, those divisions that separate human beings have been dealt with in Christ. Now you'll notice if you have the New American Standard that there are a few words that are in italics. The word a, renewal, distinction between those four words. They're not in the original Greek. There's a very strong little Greek phrase in this verse. It's ouk ani. Ouk ani. Literally means not there. Not there. And so you could really read this in verse 11 in which not there, Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman. Not there. Not present. Not existing. In Christ, there's no distinctions. They don't exist. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that same Greek phrase, ouk ani, is used three times. In Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then down in verse 28 says, Not there, Jew nor Greek. Not there, slave nor free man. Not there, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Three times, ouk ani, doesn't exist. Not there. So going back to... Colossians 3.11, the first barrier is the distinction between Greek and, and Jew, or Jew and Greek. It's an ethnic barrier. The term Greek includes all of those who are not Jewish. There are other times they're called Gentiles. But there's a contrast between Jews and non-Jews here. In the New Testament, the major ethnic distinction and barrier was this Jew and non-Jew distinction. The commentator F.F. Bruce once wrote, and this is a little outdated, but it kind of gives the picture here. He says, No iron curtain of the present day presents a more forbidding barrier than did the middle wall of partition which separated Jew from Gentile. But this barrier is removed in Christ. In his salvation, in his work of sanctification, it's no longer an issue. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 Paul writes, remember that you were at that time, that is before your conversion, he's talking to Gentile believers, before you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. In other words, before coming to Christ, salvation centered in the nation of Israel. That nation that was descended from Abraham were the chosen people of God. Any Gentile that was saved, they converted to Judaism. Verse 13 of Ephesians 2, of Ephesians 2 but now in Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, that is us Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. So you got Jew and you got Greek. And now they're one group in Christ, in the body of Christ, in the church. He broke down that barrier of the dividing wall that the two might become one new man, verse 15. And then in verse 16, he says that Christ might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And so there's this basic unity in the body of Christ. There's no longer a division between Jew and Gentile. 
The second barrier removed here in verse 11 is circumcised and uncircumcised. This is a religious barrier. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17 where circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And for the Jews, this became a very essential part of their relationship with God. The Judaizers were a problem at the church at Colossae and many other churches in New Testament times. They, they believed uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. They professed to be converted to Christianity. But they also said in order to continue along with Christ, you have to add certain things. You have to, you have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised. And if it didn't mean to gain your salvation, it meant to have a right standing before God or to live a holy life, you had to follow these laws, these religious rules. And circumcision was the main issue. It was Christ plus something else. But salvation, as we know from the Word of God, is by faith in Christ alone. And our sanctification is also by faith in Christ alone. It is all the grace of God. So religious practices, they don't add anything to our salvation, and they don't add anything to our sanctification. So these religious barriers are also removed in Christ. The third barrier, cultural barrier. Now this is an interesting one. Barbarian and Scythian, or in the Greek I guess it's Scythian, but I've never heard anyone pronounce it that way. These two are not really contrasted. There's no and between them. But the the Scythians are the the more barbaric barbarians, if I can put it that way. They were the lowest of the low. In the Greek world, in the Roman world that was saturated with the Greek culture, a barbarian was one who was uncultured. He was illiterate. He couldn't speak Greek. He wasn't familiar with Greek culture. And so the barbarians are looked down upon. If you couldn't speak Greek, if you weren't cultured in the Greek ways of living, you were a barbarian. So, any of you speak Greek? You're a barbarian. I'm a barbarian. All right. And now the Scythians, they were the lowest of the barbarians, like I said. They were the crude of the crude. You can Google Scythians sometime. Not now, but sometime this afternoon. The Scythians, um, they drank the blood of the first person they killed in battle. They perfected skinning the heads of their enemies and softening the skin and used the skin as napkins. We're we're looking at pretty bad stuff here. They would then cut the top of the skull off, clean it out, and use it as a drinking bowl. All right? You wouldn't want to sit next to him at Starbucks while he's sipping on coffee out of his skull there. All right? They were the worst of the worst. And they had the most filthy habits, and they never washed with water. So there you go. (laughs) But in Christ, again, this barrier is removed. Even a Scythian is a non-issue in the work of salvation, in the work of sanctification. Those cultural barriers are removed. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The crudest, the most uneducated are all included in the the provisions of the gospel. They're included in God's work of sanctification. And we have to recognize that that these kinds of distinctions are completely irrelevant in the church, in the work that God is doing in the church. 
a person's educational level, a person's social skills, those are not factors when it comes to being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's not an issue in salvation. It's not an issue in sanctification. This new man is being renewed. Being a barbarian, being a Scythian, it doesn't keep you from being renewed and conformed to the image of God. The last area is slave and free man. These are social barriers. A lot of the world were slaves in New Testament times. Up to a third of those living in the city of Colossae were slaves. A slave, legally speaking, was not even a person. He was property. Aristotle wrote of slaves calling them living tools, just like you find in a toolbox or in a tool belt. And that's, that's a huge distinction from what we even have in our world today, where you might have someone working on an assembly line and someone sitting in an office running the company. Those distinctions are no longer present in the church, in Christ. You can work a blue-collar job, or in my case, a brown-collar job, right? Or you can be sitting in the office wearing a a suit and tie. doesn't matter. Those barriers are no longer present, not there. These, These slaves, it was a huge distinction in that day. The free man, he had, he had every right. He owned these slaves. They were property. They were actually people. The slaves were not. So it doesn't matter. Our social status, our job position is not a factor in God's work in our lives. Whether you're, you know, whether you're saved as the lowest person in your, in your job, in your company, or the highest paid position. Whether you're the poorest or the richest. You could be a slave and yet you could be an elder in the local church. You could be a Scythian and be teaching a Greek. It didn't matter. Those distinctions are gone. Not there. There's no partiality with God. Grace, let me put it this way, grace bridges all of those chasms. And that doesn't mean there aren't distinct roles and functions with those people. A slave was still a slave. A free man was still a free man. But in the body of Christ, in the church, in Christ, they're no longer there. Going on at the end of verse 11, he says, But Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. That means Christ is absolutely everything. Christ is all that matters. Those distinctions that are so important among fallen humanity are nothing in Christ. He is everything. So I'm not focusing on your education. I'm not focusing on your social status. I'm not focusing on your ethnicity or anything like that. We all need to be focusing on Christ because we're in him and he is everything. Christ is all that matters. He dwells in all of the redeemed without distinction. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So one spirit placed us into one body, and that one spirit indwells all of us. There's a unity. All right, moving on. We have about six verses to go, right? So verse 12, this begins a new paragraph in Greek, verses 12 through 17. Um, And we ask the question, how does a Christian, a truly saved person, live his or her life? 
What's his behavior or her, her conduct to be like? What does a Christian look like on the outside? Now we start to get into the very practical things, the things that, that we do together as the body of Christ. There are certain characteristics evident in our lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The bottom line is that a Christian looks progressively more and more like the Savior. And so verses 12 through 17, we focus on more of the positive characteristics, those things which are to be found in the life of the child of God. We are to put off the sinful practices, verses 5 through 9, and we're to put on the new clothes of Christ-likeness, conduct that is consistent with the character of Christ. And the reason our conduct on the outside must change is because we've been totally, radically changed on the inside. And so the old self that was crucified with Christ is gone. Now, I, now I've been made a new man, a new creation, because I've been raised with Christ. So Paul starts in verse 12, and he says, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with, with one another, forgiving each other, and so on. The command here is put on, put on. In the Greek text, literally, that's the first word in this verse, put on. Put on, therefore, as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Put on the new clothes. Put on the new conduct that reflects the new person you are in Jesus Christ. Paul instructs the Romans in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the clothes that I wear are to reflect the person that now lives within me. And Paul further gives us an explanation as to why this change must take place. We are to do this because we are chosen of God, holy and beloved. We are those who have been redeemed by the grace of God. We are now in Christ new creatures. And it's a testimony of God's working in us. It's not a testimony of our goodness. It's not a testimony of our work, but it's God's sovereign work in us. We are those chosen of God, elect of God. Now, we have received much teaching on the election here at Cornerstone, but let me just give you a quick, brief overview of what this doctrine is all about. And I'll try to summarize this as best I can because you can literally go probably in the room right over here and get volumes on election. But the doctrine of election as it relates to salvation is very simply God's sovereign work in choosing some from among fallen humanity to receive the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. In other words, in election, God selects from fallen, sinful, rebellious mankind who want nothing to do with him he, he, he elects or chooses some to receive his salvation. It's an act of God's grace. It's an act of God's love. It's, a, it's an act of God's mercy. Because if God did not intervene, none of us would be saved. And this is certainly not a new truth in the book of Colossians. If you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, Moses writes, concerning the nation of Israel, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
Out of all the nations of the world, God selected Israel and only Israel to be the nation that would be the, the recipient of God's unique and special love. Why did he do that? Because he chose to do that. Good answer, right? He chose to do that. There was nothing in Israel that made them desirable or to make them a better choice than any other nation. God goes on in this context in Deuteronomy chapter 7 to say he didn't choose them because they were better or because they were larger. In fact, they were fewer than any other nature, nation. And then they certainly weren't any better if you look at the history of Israel in the Old Testament. God chose to set his love upon them. And so we see that doctrine of election throughout the scripture and, and into Acts chapter 2 where God starts to bring a, a redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and nation upon earth, making them one body in the church. What we're talking about here is the sovereignty of God in salvation. And sometimes we struggle with that, don't we? Because we're looking at it from a finite perspective. We're looking at it from a human perspective. And the, the question that, that Paul answers in Romans chapter 9 is the why question. Why does God do this? Why does he choose one person, not another person? We may not know all of those answers, but we know that God does the electing. He does the choosing. And I think the reason we have trouble with it sometimes is because we, we have trouble acknowledging the absolute sovereignty of God. And we have trouble understanding the absolute depravity of mankind. For some reason, we want to take credit for our own salvation. It strikes at our pride. It's very humbling to be told, I am nothing, and Christ is everything. But he is everything. Second Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, for God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. The sovereign God not only ordained the end, in other words, he chose us for salvation, but he also ordained the means to the end. That is the work of the Spirit of God using the Word of God and us believing in the truth. So God's work is accomplished in God's way. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, a familiar passage to us, it says that, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's to be a dramatic change in our lives because we've been chosen by God. In verse 12, he goes on to say, holy and beloved. The people that God has chosen for himself are a holy people. They're set apart. First, or, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's a quote from Leviticus chapter 11. Verse 44, you shall be holy for I am holy. The people that God chooses for himself and calls to himself, he chooses and calls in order for them to be manifesting his holy character. The holy one who called you. We're to be a people called to holiness. That word holy means to be separate. It means to be set apart. Someone who is holy is someone who is set apart from sin. And God himself is completely, totally, fully separated from sin. He's holy. And we're to be like him, 
set apart, holy. Then he goes on to say beloved, holy and beloved. This word is in what's called the perfect passive tense. It describes a continuing action that is done to us. We are those on whom God has continually set his love. So you who are chosen of God, holy, and those upon whom God has set his love. It's that specific love of God which those who are redeemed by his grace enter into and experience. And that's to shape our lives from the point of conversion all the way to heaven. All right, verse 12, the end of verse 12, we're going to be now looking at five characteristics of this new life in Christ. Five virtues that should be manifest in our lives as those who've been chosen of God, those who are called to be holy, those upon whom the love of God has been set. Five sins listed in verse 5, five more sins listed in verse 8, and now five virtues or moral qualities that are to be part of our lives as Christians. And all of these have to do with our relationship with one another. We're talking about unity in the body of Christ. So it's not just true of us individually, but true of us collectively as as the body of Christ, the church. He says, first of all, put on a heart of compassion. Put on a heart of compassion. The word translated heart is the word splanknon. It's a hard word to say. Splanknon. It talks about our inner parts. We've talked about this in one of our uh, messages recently with, with Pastor Bill. The inner parts are bowels. Bowels of compassion, I believe it says in the King James. These are where our feelings are centered. You know, when, when you get a, a gut check, that's, that's the, the idea. It's something that's heartfelt. You know, when, when you get all excited, you feel butterflies in your stomach, that kind of thing. This is a deep, heartfelt emotion in action. These are feelings that come from within. The word compassion here means either compassion or pity or mercy. Paul wrote in Romans 12 that we we saw earlier, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. That's that word compassion. By the compassions, the mercies of God. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul refers to God as the father of mercies. Same word. True, heartfelt compassion, mercy, and evidence of God's character in our lives. He's our Father. He produces this character in and through us. The second quality, kindness. And you'll see a lot of these overlap with each other. Kindness. It means generosity, goodness. Psalm 34, 8 in the Septuagint, it uses the same Greek word. Taste and see that the Lord is Good, good. Romans 2 verse 4 says, The kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God. God's kindness, God's generosity, His goodness in dealing with us as fallen sinful human beings in such a way as to draw us to salvation in Christ. And as His people, to continue to deal with us in goodness and kindness in every way. These things are produced in us from the inside out. Kindness, it's a fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It's something that's produced by Christ-like love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. This is what the Holy Spirit is producing in the lives of God's people, the character of Christ in our lives. So we've looked at 
compassion, we looked at kindness. The third word, humility. Humility. It's a compound word, word really. It means lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. It means modesty. Humility. Jesus is spoken of as being gentle and humble in heart. That's that word, humble. It was true of him in his character. He was gentle. He was humble in heart. It's interesting, this word is never used in classical Greek because for the natural man, humility is not a virtue. Pride is a virtue. Thinking highly of yourself is a virtue. Putting yourself first is a virtue. But not in the church. Humility. Philippians 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as what? more important than himself. That's not a natural thing, is it? With that kind of attitude, we're to put others before ourselves. It goes on in Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Lord of glory, he humbled himself. And he is our pattern. He is our example. Lowliness of mind, humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Again, in the church, in the context of the body of Christ. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The fourth virtue, gentleness. Gentleness. The word gentleness simply means humility or meekness or courtesy. it's It's a word that would be opposite of harshness or arrogance. And again, it's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. It's, it's sometimes referred to as firmness or strength under control. The Lord Jesus Christ, he was not weak in any way. He was strong. He was powerful. He drove out the money changers. He confronted the religious leaders. And yet he was gentle and humble. And then finally, at the end of verse 12, patience. This is a, a long Greek word. It's, it, it simply means long-suffering. It means to have a very long fuse. Patient endurance, long-suffering. Again, another fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, it's a manifestation of genuine love. Love is what? Patient. Patient. Macrothumia is the word. True love doesn't lose patience. It doesn't get exasperated. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, And for this reason, Paul says, I found mercy in order that in me is the foremost, that is the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. That's that word, macrothumia. In Christ, we see perfect patience. Do you know why we're saved? It's because of his patience. He's patient. He didn't run out of patience with me. He was long-suffering with me. He didn't get exasperated or give up on me. And as his children, even when we sin against him and we displease him, he still demonstrates his perfect patience with us. And we need also to grow and mature in having patience with others. Moving on to verse 13. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Here we see 
two present participles. Two present participles, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. It's an ongoing characteristic that should be in us. The word here for bearing with, it means to endure. It means to bear with. It means to put up with. Are you able to put up with others? That's the word here. And when God produces this characteristic in our lives by the power of the Spirit, we will put up with one another. My wife puts up with me. She demonstrates Christ's like bearing, forbearance with me. It's funny because I wouldn't have to put up with you if you were perfect. You wouldn't have to put up with me if I were perfect, but we're not perfect, are we? That's why this is here. We need to be forbearing with one another. We need to bear with one another. And not only do we need to bear with one another, we need to forgive one another. We don't just put up with one another, but we must be forgiving as well. This word here, forgiving, it's not the the normal word for forgive in the New Testament. Um, The word here is a word that has as its root the word grace. Graciously forgiving. Graciously giving. Freely forgiving. It emphasizes something that is freely and graciously offered to someone else. It's done as a favor, even when it's not deserved, even when it's unmerited. And very quickly, let me just give you a quick definition of what forgiveness is in the Scriptures. And you can write this down or just not, for, not remember or whatever it is. But basically, it's, it's a commitment when someone sins against you to not remember that sin anymore. Not to forget it. It's not forgive and forget. It's forgive and not remember anymore. There's a difference. Remember, not remembering is active. Forgetting is passive. And so when we forgive someone, we make a commitment to them, a covenant with them. And it basically includes three things. First of all, I'm not going to dwell on this sin that you've committed against me in my mind anymore. I'm not going to stew on it. I'm not going to bring it up with you anymore. And I'm not going to bring it up with any, uh, anyone else. I'm not going to dwell on it in my mind. I'm not going to bring it up with you again. I'm not going to bring it up with anyone else. I choose not to remember it anymore. And that's what God has done in Christ for us. He doesn't hold our sins against us. He remembers them no more. We are completely, graciously forgiven. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And it's, it's certainly true, according to verse 13, that sometimes we do have grievances. We do have complaints against one another. It says so right here. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. But what's the attitude? Forgiveness, right? Limitly, limitlessly, try that word. Forgive as Christ has forgiven us. No matter what's happened, be willing to forgive. No matter what's happened to us, it doesn't compare to how we've offended a holy God. The issue is not how much we've been wronged, but the issue is how much we've been forgiven. Verse 14, and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So love is kind of like the belt that ties everything together. It wraps everything together. It's the most important garment. Beyond all of these things that he's talked about, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, patience, bearing with, forgiving each other, put on love. Put on love. All of those other virtues flow out of the love that's produced in me by the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. What? 
if you have love for one another. Again, that relationship within the context of the body of Christ. Self-sacrificing love. In Galatians 5.22, that's the leading fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. First and foremost, it's the supreme characteristic of the child of God. It, it encompasses everything else. Because agape love is not a love of emotion. It's not a love of response. It's a love of action. It's doing what's best for someone else. It's acting for their good. And that's what God in Christ has done for us. And he says here it's the perfect bond of unity. Literally, it's the bond of perfection. It's the bond that produces perfection or maturity or true growth in Christ. It all comes in the context of the body functioning in love together. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That is, conduct the way you live in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And so we're to imitate his love, just as Christ loved us. Jesus said in John 15, Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Is that not the ultimate sacrifice? That's what we're talking about when we talk about agape love. We're to love and to walk in love as Christ loved us. And then moving on, verse 15. We have three verses. We'll try to do this quickly. Verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let peace act as arbiter, literally the umpire, the one that calls the plays, that makes the decisions in the game, the umpire. Peace is to rule. We're called into the body in a relationship of peace. And I just want to say something as a side. It doesn't mean we sacrifice truth for the sake of peace. We don't lay aside the word of God just so we can have quote-unquote peace and have kumbaya and, and sit around the campfire together and hold hands. But we must desire to have peace within the church. There's no place for fracturing the peace of the body over personal grievances. If there's a doctrinal issue, it's got to be dealt with. If there's open sin, it must be dealt with. But there's no place in the body of Christ for, for schisms, for factions, for selfish ambitions, or for personal grievances that would cause a division or a lack of peace within the body. Peace, again, is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. So we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives who's placed us in the body of Christ and who is now directing and controlling in the very functioning of the body. Romans 14, 19 says, So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of the body. So let the peace of Christ rule. Let it be the arbiter. Let it be the umpire. Let it guide you in all your decisions. At the end of verse 15, we see another command, another present tense command, and be thankful. We're going to see this word thankful come up in the next three verses, 15, 16, 17. Be thankful. We as a, as a body of Christ, we're to be thankful. We're to continually give gratitude to God for who he is and what he has done. We're to be a thankful people. 
thankful for what he's done for us in Christ, thankful for how he provides for us, thankful for how he cares for us. Be thankful. And then verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is, in this section, the last of the commands. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's a present tense command. Let it dwell. Literally, let it be at home in your heart. So we see, let the peace of Christ rule. Verse 15, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This means the truth that we received about Christ, the truth that we received from Christ. It's the truth that we find in our Bibles. The word of God, let it dwell richly within you. Ephesians chapter 5 is an, is an interesting comparison to this passage. It says in verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's a command to be filled by the Spirit of God. Just as we're commanded here to be filled, or let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And the same result is, is seen in Ephesians 5, verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the results are exactly the same. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. To have the Word of Christ living in us and richly dwelling within us, it permeates our lives. It controls everything that we do. We're controlled by the Word of God. We're controlled by the Spirit of God. It's the dominating influence in all that we do. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Charles Spurgeon once remarked about John Bunyan. He said, Why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text for his very soul is full of the word of God. That's how we are to be. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And again, that's in the context of church unity. He goes on to say, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing, singing, and so forth. This is the body together. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, we proclaim him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. So we, as we gather together as the body of Christ, the word of Christ must be richly dwelling among us. And then it will follow with teaching and admonishing and singing and so forth. So teaching the truth, admonishing with the truth, that is more of the negative, the warning, the counsel, the reproof. And obviously the word of God is what we use, both to teach and to admonish. All scripture is what? Inspired by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Second Corinthians or Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. So you have those two participles, teaching and admonishing. And then the third one, quickly, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing. 
The word singing is not used very often in Scripture in the New Testament, this word. We see it here, we see it in Ephesians, and we see it in the book of Revelation. Singing. Singing is simply an outward expression of the inner expression of thankfulness to God. Gratitude towards God. And here Paul says we're to be singing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And you can read all about how these things are divided and broken down. Psalms are simply, um, it's, it's, it's a music or a song accompanied by a stringed instrument. It often refers to the Old Testament psalms. Hymns are songs that particularly express uh, praise to God and, and exalt his glory. Spiritual songs are more general in nature, spiritual nature. Songs of worship, like I said, we see in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 14, verse 3. Revelation 15, verse 3. The word song. In other words, we're singing to the Lord with thankfulness in our hearts for his greatness, for his love, for his mercy, for who he is, for his truth. When we sing to the Lord together as the body of Christ, it's really a foretaste of heaven. Together. And then finally... Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Our lives are to be lived in their entirety according to the will of God and consistent with his character. This phrase, the name of the Lord Jesus, it stands for his person, for who he is in his entirety. All that he is, do everything according to to his person, to his will, to his character. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's basically saying the same thing here. Do all to the glory of God. Do everything according to the name of Christ, consistent with his will, consistent with his character. Again, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Third time giving thanks in this passage. We're to be a people whose hearts are to be overflowing with gratitude. I put in the last page of my notes a hymn from our hymn book, number 377, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. This passage made me think of that of that hymn. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything, that I may be calm to comfort sick and sorrowing. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May I run the race before me, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as I onward go. And then finally, may his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. And may they forget the channel, seeing only him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the body of Christ, this wonderful group of people that you've brought together, saving us, forgiving us, calling us out of the world, separating us to be holy, in Christ. We thank you, Father, for this passage of Scripture. May you apply these words to our lives and to this local church that we may be one 
in unity, one in purpose, that we might bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, we thank you that Christ lives in us and we are in him. Father, help us to be continually renewed in our minds, that we might put off the old and put on the new, that we might put on all of these Christ-like attributes, that we might progressively live our lives in a way that would honor and please you, that we might bring glory to your name. We thank you in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.